This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. For this evening, we're going to look at some qualities that are so-called universal qualities. Uh, What we experience in our life is, of course, our particular life. And everything um, feels very personal and very specific. And we can be very interested in our life and our story and what we're going to do and what we used to do. Um, And this is all relevant for practice. And yet uh, the Buddha points toward another dimension that is um, less specific and that becomes evident as we go through practice. So, but we'll get to that. We'll let that unfold. So starting with the personal, I have recently undergone a change. (laughs) Um, I have moved out of a place that I lived for two and a half years and moved back into the place I was living before that. And it was a big change. It's a big change to move. And there was definitely some... um, suffering around this process of leaving uh, a place that had become familiar for two and a half years and which was a wonderfully supportive Dharma atmosphere and moving back into the bustle of Silicon Valley. (laughs) And that's been uh, more of a shock than I expected. Yeah, so these are just events in a specific life. In um, In a way, this is very personal. No one else has done exactly what I've done in the last couple of months. However, plenty of people change residence every day. It's not that personal in some sense. And many of them go from a quieter situation to a noisier one. And any idea about what this says about my life um, is easily recognized as a story, right? If I tell you all about this for two hours over coffee, you'll say, oh my gosh, she, you know, the story goes on and on. So most fundamentally we can say that these are just experiences that are happening currently. And I can describe them in certain ways. Yeah, so the Buddha said that the ebb and flow of life, the normal changes of moving, changing, getting a different job, having a change in your health, meeting people, losing friends, all that is a great opportunity for insight. You know, these qualities, the, the very stuff of your life, is not what's preventing you from being enlightened. This is the material through which we can become enlightened when it's perceived and viewed in a certain way. Yeah? So our habitual way of relating to our life is to make it particular and make it a personal story about a drama, really, um, in which we're the star. Uh, But it's also an opportunity for expanding our understanding of these more universal characteristics that we're going to talk about characteristics of human experience. And once we're not caught in the me aspect, these become more evident. And I hope to show not only what they are and kind of how those perceptions come about, but why you would want to see that way. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the subject of this talk, is these these three qualities. I'll just name them first. Um, They are impermanence, so change, Uh, unsatisfactoriness, the sense that it's never quite right. (laughs) We'll go into each of these in more detail. 
And the third is um, something like impersonality or emptiness or not self. Um, that they have uh, the quality of being uh, conditioned and interdependent and that not sort of empty of enduring, uh, enduringness. That's part of the change. So these three characteristics, as they're called, are present really in all experiences. And we'll see how that comes about from the story of our day to the refined sensations that we experience in meditation. They're all subject to these three qualities. And part of my aim is to place these three characteristics or qualities, also called marks, within the context of the Buddhist teachings because we're learning about fundamental Buddhist principles in this series And so I want to emphasize that these were actually originally called the three perceptions. We don't call them that anymore. The language has somehow been changed over time. But these were originally called the three perceptions. So perceiving that things are impermanent. You don't have to perceive that way. You could look for the stability in everything. Of course it changes, but then you could jump to the next instance of stability. But there's, the Buddha says there's some advantage in actually perceiving that things are changing and changeable. And then the perception that they're not quite right. We spend a lot of time, and we're even told in society, to uh, look on the bright side, you know, um, have positive thinking. Uh, not that these things are incorrect, but there's, there's some advantage, some interest in seeing that actually things aren't that satisfying, <laughs> really. Um, you know, that new car is um, really great at first, but then the insurance costs more than for an older car. And, you know, you're, you're worried about it and whatever. There's always something that's not quite right. And, of course, the steering wheel doesn't quite work the same way as the old one, whatever it is. And it's also interesting to see things as um, not so personal, you know, not so much about me. Uh, We immediately feel some relief when we see that uh, they actually have just come together because the conditions for them are there. And it's not really all about Kim. (laughs) It's actually quite tiring to think of the universe as being all about me and relating to me and for me and against me. (laughs) So there's some advantage to starting to see, um, to see these more universal qualities. At some point, they came to be called characteristics or lakana. Um, I'm going to put in a different word on them and say that these are the three key insights that uh, we experience while we practice uh, the Buddhist teachings. So these are also said to be doors to liberation. You know, these three insights. So let's talk a little bit more about each one so that we have a sense of what they are and why they're important. The first is impermanence, and the Pali word for this is anicca. So you're going to learn a little Pali tonight also. So anicca. um, And it, it is usually translated as impermanent. And we can say that if something is impermanent, it will end. I mean, what does that mean to be impermanent? Well, it will end. (laughs) And more uh, generally, there's change. So things shift and change. The Buddha often spoke of this in terms of the phrase arising and passing. So things arise, they change, and they pass. All the time. (laughs) It's hard to overemphasize how important 
impermanence is in uh, early Buddhist teaching. So I've, up to now I've been saying the three characteristics, the three insights, the three perceptions, and listed them kind of equally. It's actually not true. That's the other thing I want to, the other myth I want to debunk tonight is that these are not equal um, in the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, impermanence is really placed in the number one position in early Buddhism. And I'm going to give some examples from the suttas if you can bear with some uh, some examples from the early teachings that show how important this is. And then the others kind of derive from that. Later teachings place them much more on an equal level. But the early teachings, the ones most likely taught by the Buddha himself, really emphasize impermanence. It's the central insight. So what is so special about that? Everybody knows that things change. I mean, if you walk out on the street and you ask somebody, do things change? It doesn't matter if they're a Buddhist practitioner or a contemplative person at all. Everybody will say, of course things change. Most likely, I would think. And so you can say, well, what's the big deal? Why is that so centrally important? And if I already know it, why am I practicing? So let's look a little bit more carefully at um, why the Buddha picked out something so seemingly obvious as actually the deepest insight that we can have. So it's actually all over the written teaching. So let's, let's have a few examples. Dhammapada 113, Gil Fronstall's translation says, Better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day lived seeing their arising and passing. So that's pretty clear. There's also a sutta called the Velama Discourse that develops this idea in a different way. It begins nominally with being about gift giving, and it talks about um, the quality of material gifts, which are affected by the state of mind of the giver and the spiritual qualities of the receiver. And it says, you know, it's really, it's the best to um, feed a Buddha. But if you can't feed a Buddha, well, you can feed a, a non-returner and so forth. It sort of goes through these, all these levels of people. Um, and not surprisingly, it says that, uh, you know, if you if you give with a, an open heart to a very spiritually developed person, that is, you know, a very highly developed gift. However, um, it then switches suddenly at the end, and it says that better than even the most lavish material gift to a very highly spiritually developed person is to cultivate one's own mind. And then it gives a few examples, and at the very end, the, the highest form of cultivating one's mind is, quote, to develop the perception of impermanence for the time of a finger snap. That's said to be the highest, better than any material gift, better than the development of sila, you know, of, of ethical qualities, etc. So, wow, it's kind of placed at the top of to, to develop the perception of impermanence for the time of a finger snap. Anicca, impermanence, is also prominent in meditation instructions. So it's not uh, just something that we kind of will ourselves to be aware of. We're actually encouraged to cultivate it through regular practice. The foundational text of our tradition is called the Satipatthana Sutta, and that talks about how to be mindful and what to be mindful of, basically. You've, You've heard teachings from it, whether or not you know that that's where they're from. And the meditator is instructed to contemplate, 
what? The, the nature of arising, of vanishing, and of both arising and vanishing for each of the different uh, practices offered that relate to mindfulness. Yeah? So, um, even in the specific instructions on mindfulness of breathing, which is a whole separate discourse, uh, contemplation of impermanence is singled out as a particular step that one should do while contemplating the breath. You know, of course the breath is changing all the time, but um, it's, one is encouraged to particularly attune the mind to the impermanent nature, the vanishing of the breath at the end of the out-breath, for example, and the continual change through the cycle of the breath. And just one more, because I just love the written teachings tonight. There's a sutta called the Upanisa Sutta that says, the destruction of the taints, that means attaining enlightenment, the destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. Knowing what, seeing what, does the destruction of the taints occur? Such is material form. Such is the arising of material form. Such is the passing away of material form. And the same for some other qualities, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. For one who knows and sees this, the destruction of the taints occurs. Okay, so it's very simple. It says, such is material form. So imagine the body. Such is the body. Such is the arising of the body. So my awareness of feeling those sensations, such as the passing away. They change. Oh, I have a pain in my knee. It wasn't there a moment ago. Now it's gone. That's, all, that's an example of what that's referring to. And it says that contemplating that, for one who knows that, the destruction of the taints occurs. What is that saying? It says that observing impermanence leads to f- complete enlightenment. That's what it says. The language is stilted, but when you really look at what it says, it says, if you just notice everything in your experience arising and passing away, that is what leads to full enlightenment. It's pretty clear. So that may get our attention. I mean, how many things have you noticed arising and passing today from, you know, the itch on your shoulder to the lunch that you had? It arose, it passed, but did you notice? (laughs) So just attuning to that again and again. Now, it doesn't say how many times you have to repeat this instruction. (laughs) And I think those of us who have practiced for a while know that it's a lot of times. But if we have faith, (laughs) this sutta says that that's all that's needed. So this is good news, actually, because we can notice things changing. We can notice things arising and passing. It's happening all the time sounds outside, my voice, uh, the comfort of your body changes over time, the heat is changing, your thoughts are changing, your emotions are changing. It's easy to see this, actually, and it's sufficient to keep going if you really take that all the way. So the good news about anicca, change, impermanence, is that given that it's inevitable... It is our relationship to change that determines our suffering or our freedom. Yeah, So we're not going to get things to stop changing, just so you know. (laughs) If you were hoping to reach that perfect state and just keep it there, you might try a different approach. 
So, um, so it's our relationship to change, how we experience that, how we perceive that, how we respond to that, that determines whether or not we suffer. So here's, um, here's a quote that was said when the Buddha passed away by an observer of that. Impermanent truly are compound things, which means everything, that by nature arising and passing away, if they arise and are extinguished, their eradication brings happiness. Or another translation is, all conditioned things are impermanent. They are of the nature to arise and pass away. Those who understand this truth deeply will live happily. And this... um, this little verse is actually quite popular in Thailand. It's chanted at funerals, for example. And so p- here they are. People are, somebody has died, and the people are chanting, conditioned things are impermanent, they arise and pass away, like people, people are conditioned. And those who understand this will live happily. Isn't that interesting that they say this at funerals? Oh, how wonderful that things have arisen and passed away. We've had the opportunity to see this in relation to something profound like our loved one. I think it's interesting. And it's something to reflect on also because there are changes that don't make us happy. Yeah? Changes in our health or uh, losses of various kinds. Um, And I think the implication is really to look at that, actually, and to see if there is some... way of relating to that that can actually bring happiness resting in the the peace of understanding change for example resting in the truth of change that even if something is a loss and there will be pain and grief associated with that if there can also be something in there that has some spiritual energy to it an insight ah yes thank you for this reminder that things are impermanent this is a mature teaching The Buddha himself said, right near the end of his life, nothing in the world is fit to be clung to. Nothing in the world is fit to be clung to. It's that clinging that makes it hard to let things go. It's kind of poignant, actually. In the words of another teacher that I appreciate, he says, Anicca is heartbreaking, but also freeing. Yeah. So it's useful to train ourselves to see, to see this impermanence, to perceive that. There are implications of this then. So this is the fundamental teaching. Things change. <laughs> And then there are implications of this. And this is again, so this is example from the teachings, the written teachings. The Buddha would often talk with people about this and he would employ a set of three questions. So he would start by saying, okay, answer this as you see fit. Is a certain thing permanent or impermanent? And the person he was talking with would say, impermanent, venerable sir. And then he would lead them on and say, is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? 
And they would think and say, oh, it's suffering. Um, And then he would say, is what is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. And they would have to say, no, it is not. Um, You know, if, if something is myself, my essential, unchanging nature then it's not supposed to change. <laughs> if, if there's something that is passing away and only here sometimes, um, only comes about under certain conditions and then falls apart when those conditions aren't there, that's not my essential, true, uh, unchanging soul. And so he points again and again to um, qualities, you know, to, to the fact that things are not, not stable in this way and therefore are not fit to be seen as an essential nature. So these are the other two characteristics. I've slipped them in. Um, is a certain thing permanent or impermanent? So that's a Nietzsche. That's what we were just talking about. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? And we could say, is it satisfactory or unsatisfactory? Well, that's dukkha. That's the quality that things are unsatisfactory. This is the second poly word we're learning, dukkha is this second characteristic. It means unsatisfactoriness. And then the implication of that is what is impermanent and unsatisfactory and subject to change. Is that fit to be regarded as a self or as something that we can own? And the person has to say, well, no. And so then this is this third quality that's a little hard to characterize with one word, but the Buddha does it with the word anatta, And it means something like not-self or empty of an enduring nature or selfless. So in these early teachings, um, dukkha and anatta, the second two characteristics, are derivatives of the first. They are also um, important qualities. He teaches them alongside with the first, but they're implications. They're just implications of anicca. If everything is changing, of course it doesn't provide lasting happiness. If everything is shifting and changing, of course it doesn't have uh, a nature to it that is stable. And the Buddha understood that some people find it easier to understand these other qualities, and so he offered them also but always as derivatives of understanding the basic nature that things change. So let's talk a little bit about these other two also. So the unsatisfactoriness inherent in things comes from the fact that because they change, they're unreliable, basically. They don't create a lasting form of happiness which is pretty clear in the case of some things like donuts (laughs) you know the donut is over after five minutes or if you get a lot of donuts and so they're not going to be over they're still going to become unsatisfactory (laughs) after a few (laughs) right so that's how it works so 
Now, our, we're, we're smarter than that, actually. I'm, I'm not really giving everybody credit here. We're smarter than that. We know that you can have the donut and it's satisfactory. And then after that, you have the coffee, and that's pretty satisfactory for that time. And then after that, you go for a walk, and you string them together, right? <laughs> and so then you have this illusion that you can kind of keep the satisfactoriness going by only staying with one thing uh, during the time when it is actually satisfactory. So, I'm just pointing out. <laughs> I hear a few laughs. Just saying. So, here's a quote from Andy Olensky. Conventional strategies for human happiness entail various ways of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The problem is that pleasure is not ultimately sustainable and pain is not avoidable. The shortcoming of our usual approaches is that they treat the symptoms rather than addressing the underlying causes of the predicament, namely that unsatisfactoriness is part of the very fabric of experience. So he says it more elegantly than I did, but um, this is also called the first noble truth, which is that there is uh, unsatisfactoriness in the way things are. And so how do we deal with this? I mean, this isn't exactly doesn't sound exactly like good news to know that unsatisfactoriness is woven into the very fabric of experience. I mean, I was kind of hoping for happiness here uh, or something. Um, And actually that's, you know, that's a serious consideration is that, you know, what is this feeling that drives us on? Um, This quality dukkha has a wide range. Uh, It can go from, it can include, you know, actual very serious types of suffering, the suffering of illness, of death, of um, poverty, of war, these kinds of things, oppression of various kinds, you know, that are, that are genuine, obvious um, experiences of pain. And then it can range all the way to that feeling that even in a life that is currently in a pretty good position, um, maybe you have a job and a car and a home and a relationship and things are okay but there's always that feeling of I don't quite have it together there's still this uh you know it's not quite aligned um this could be just a little bit better I'm still a little bit annoyed about my brother you know whatever it is you've got something right some little thing and so there's that feeling just that feeling of it's just not quite all together and we have that feeling like if I could just hold on to this and shape this a little bit more and push that in, then it would all be together. But it wouldn't stay that way, of course, right? So that feeling, that feeling that drives us of that slight unsatisfactoriness, and then even farther extreme, even in sublime experiences of meditation, if we are on retreat, say, and have reached some kind of concentration or calmness, we don't have those responsibilities in our life even then, we will see that the mind is doing a little bit, kind of trying to tweak that up a little bit, and, you know, little thoughts come in. Even in these sublime experiences, there's a little bit, often, of uh, unsatisfactoriness. Could be just a little more peaceful, don't you think? So... This is not a personal failing on your part to get your life together or to be a better meditator or whatever. Um, This is actually 
a quality of the way things are. And so we're instructed to do what? To investigate it, to turn toward it, to see that this is just how it is in a human life and that there must, you know, and therefore to seek some other relationship to events than expecting them to be satisfactory. Because that's the issue, is that we really expect that they're going to bring happiness in some way. And we're looking for that. And we're accusing them of not doing that for us. <laughs> and uh, that is actually um, the part that's, that we can let go of. So the usual response, however, to dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactoriness is to push it away, to cover it over, to deny it, to get lost in it, to complain about it, to grasp for something pleasant. That's the usual response. And the Buddha says, don't do that. Actually, take a step back and just look, uh, understand, investigate uh, this quality. And it's interesting, actually, right there, as soon as we just step back and say, okay, this is dukkha. This is not feeling quite satisfactory. Uh, We've created some space and we've allowed the mind to look at suffering and start to learn something at kind of an intuitive level. You may think you're not learning anything. Yeah, okay, I get it. You know, this is a really hot day and I'm feeling very uncomfortable right now. Okay, great. Um, At some level, what you're learning, you're learning that the weather is not controllable and yeah, this is uncomfortable right now. And if I fight against it, Uh, it hurts more than if I step back and look at it. At some level, your heart learned that. So when we keep looking, we start to discover something very interesting, which is that the dukkha is mostly in the mind's reaction, actually. It's mostly in what I said earlier about the mind trying to get experience to be perfect, and trying to make it last and make it satisfactory. So it's not really the objects that are causing large amounts of suffering. It's the craving, the clinging, the avoiding, the rejecting, the identifying, all of those things that we do going on in our minds. So that's the second noble truth, is that the mind's reaction is the, the cause So then we start to appreciate that there's a difference between experiencing something and believing that it's happening to me. (laughs) It's happening to me. This is, this is, uh, you know, something that has befallen me that has come about to me, to me, to me. The addition of the me is kind of additional is extra. It's the process of identification. It's a natural process. Um, If you find yourself thinking about me, don't worry. (laughs) It's normal. Um, And if you start saying, oh, I shouldn't do that. I hate that. I have to stop. That's more dukkha. (laughs) That's rejecting uh, a natural arising. Yeah, so, but we do come to see that the me is a little bit optional. It's there sometimes and not other times. And that when it's there, there's a much greater chance of experiencing this unsatisfactoriness. So there are kind of two options. Uh, When the mind can stand in a place of what's called non-identification, of just experiencing things as they are, then we're experiencing the third, this third 
quality, this third characteristic of anatta or emptiness. It's not doesn't have to be some grand, uh, amazing experience where I don't know what it would be. It's actually just when you s- realize, oh, this is just heat. This is just a bitter sensation. This is just joy. It's not about, and you don't have a sense that it's all about me and my story and this is arising and this is all part of you know some uh, drama that I've constructed. When we're just experiencing it, that has a quality that has the quality of anatta. We don't generally look for it, but you can start to perceive that there are times when um, all those self-concerns really aren't there. And so that's tuning, beginning to tune in to this quality. It deepens over time, but we can see it right away. So given that we can't necessarily control when the mind decides to create the me, you'll notice that you, don't, you can't will this not to happen. Um, there is an alternative, which is that um, you know, once there is the me and there's the story and you realize, oh, I'm caught in this, suffering is still avoided by invoking compassion. Yeah, so we can feel, oh, you know, there I am again, or there's this situation again. And compassion arises naturally, and it also is an escape from uh, feeling a lot of the dukkha of selfness and of unsatisfactoriness and of changeableness. So when we deeply understand unsatisfactoriness, this second characteristic, I would say that we dwell in responsive compassion that is based in selflessness. And the Buddha himself is a good example of this. The Buddha was a person who had completely let go of being lost in his story. Um, He had completely non-identified with his experience and didn't experience suffering around what was arising and passing for him because he had let go of all of that. But was he an emotional ice cube? (laughs) Um, Was he not involved in his world? Was he not able to use the pronoun I? No, he could do all of those things. He walked around, he said who he was, he uh, told about his childhood and his enlightenment and his teachings. He was responsive to people who came and asked him questions. He was very compassionate about uh, caring for each individual person who came to him with spiritual questions. Now, he was kind of tough love. I can't say he was like, you know, the ideal mother figure. (laughs) But um, I think this is a good example of someone who deeply understood suffering and had let go also of his own self-concerns and yet, you know, functioned as a quite a remarkable human being. So what I'm trying to say with all that is don't go with the idea of what you think looking at these three characteristics is going to be. Just observe them in your experience. Observe this is changing. Observe this is unsatisfactory. Observe when there's a story and when there isn't. That's sufficient. So recall this logic chain. Is this permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? suffering. And is what is impermanent suffering or subject to change fit to be regarded thus? 
this is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, it's not. So it doesn't make sense, really, to identify a separate self in the light of continual change and unreliability. So uh, an alternative way of seeing, of perceiving, is to perceive what's called interconnectedness or conditionality. So seeing that each thing, each thing that we call a thing, is actually there because the conditions for it are there. And it won't be there when the conditions for it are not there. You know, and that's kind of an abstract way of speaking. But to take an example, um, in order for me to see this striker, there have to be a bunch of conditions for it. There has to be the striker, first of all. Um, I have to have a functioning eye. If I'm blind, I can't see it. There has to be light. That's how the eye works. And there has to be um, consciousness, my consciousness of seeing it. Those four are required for there to be the experience of seeing the striker for me. It's not anything complicated. And if any one of those is not present, it won't happen. That's all. (laughs) And everything that we, every experience that we perceive has qualities like that. If you look for them, you know, why is it that I'm experiencing heat? Well, I have a body that perceives heat and there's a temperature that's hot and I'm paying attention to that. (laughs) Joseph Goldstein says, only six things ever happen. (laughs) And those are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind. (laughs) It's kind of true. It's kind of true. So, so where in that is, you know, is the separate entity that is called the self that is permanent and constant. It's, it's not really there. It's always these conditions that are coming together. And when they change, then something else is perceived. So it's not that um, nothing exists, of course. The proof is all around us. So it's not that nothing, you know, doesn't exist. I don't know. So seeing things in terms of their conditions is a useful way to perceive, and that's another way to look into this not-self, this anatta, this non-inherence. So there's no separate entity that controls this process of conditions coming together, changing and falling apart, and then coming together and continually shifting. We can't really find it. There is influence through certain qualities of the mind, but not ultimate control over the way these things flow. Yeah? So, this is from a teacher named George Draffin in Seattle. Know these three characteristics and live from that knowing and you're free. This is all emptiness is or means. There's no such thing or state as emptiness. Things are simply empty of the permanence and independence and ultimate satisfaction that we mistakenly project onto them. That's all, and that's everything. (laughs) So... Could I read it again? I can, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about it also. So it says, Know these three characteristics and live from that knowing, and you're free. This is all emptiness is or means. There is no such thing or state as emptiness. Things are simply empty of the permanence and independence and ultimate satisfaction 
that we mistakenly project onto them. That's all and that's everything. So there's a lot packed into there. But the phrase that I like, that, I, that I'm going to pick out of it actually, is to say, know these three characteristics and live from that knowing. So that's the instruction that's hard to follow. <laughs> um, how do we live? How do we live knowing that everything is fluid, subject to change, not really in our control, uh, probably going to disappoint in the long run? So I would say that in, in my experience, or in, for maybe for my particular mind, there's danger in too much wisdom teaching, <laughs> which is what we've been doing tonight, right? We're talking about these abstract three characteristics so it's possible from this to start feeling a sense of meaninglessness or um, uh, it's all unsatisfactory anyway, so why do I care? Or, you know, I don't really exist, so it doesn't matter that I take care of myself. You know, you can get these strange um, kind of uh, not really correct logic, but seemingly logical steps from these. So I have found a little formula helpful So, the antidote to attachment, this is a wisdom teaching we'll start with, the antidote to attachment is recognizing this this emptiness, emptiness of permanence and solidity and independence. So recognizing the three characteristics is the antidote to attachment. The remedy for emptiness is compassion. Yeah, so, um, you know, going too much into the the sense of everything's changing, nothing matters, nothing's permanent, etc. Living from that actually, in my experience, entails cultivating compassion because we're all living with this. You know, every being that we see is experiencing the fact that their life isn't really in control and that things are changing and that they know they're going to get sick and die but are trying to avoid that and they want to keep their relationships and they want to have a livelihood that works. We all want this and it's not easy um, to keep all that together in a human life because of exactly this slippery nature. And so we live in both worlds. You know, we live in the world of the three characteristics and those who can see that will suffer less. That's, you know, that's what we're aiming for in a way through all this difficult practice that a lot of people don't take the time to do. And yet we also live in the very human world of being here with each other and trying to help each other along the path and trying to make this world work for as many people as possible. And that arises from compassion. That's the expression of wisdom in the world. So in practice, combining these characteristics and the compassionate response to them means resting openly in whatever arises, accepting what comes, being with life as it is, I'll read another little quote. Usually we're so caught up in trying to make pleasant experiences arise and stay or trying to make unpleasant experiences disappear or we get lost in the details of mental and emotional dramas that we don't notice the basic characteristic all experiences and things share, their impermanence. Let the implications of the fact that everything is changing sink deep into your bones 
know in mind, heart, and body. Live that knowing in the choices of life day to day. Let it remind you that this fleeting world is precious, that we have some choices within a world of momentum and constraint, and those choices matter. They lead to suffering and regret or to freedom and peace. So living with an open heart, with the warmth of knowing that things are going to change, the warmth of non-attachment, if I can say it that way. This is what we're offered through the wisdom that we develop on the cushion and in our life. It's the chance to care (laughs) in the end, to care about this life and the people that we encounter and our own spiritual development. and, And it all comes from watching things arise and pass and knowing that that is how they are and always will be.